You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, so for our listeners, we've had a few requests over the past couple weeks uh, for an episode looking at a couple things. So we're actually going to meet listener demand on this episode. Uh, so... If you're interested, uh, we're going to be talking first about the recent political tumult in Malaysia, where we had a very dramatic collapse in the governing coalition and a new government come into power. Um, so we're looking to make sense of what that means for the country internally and for regional geopolitics in Southeast Asia, uh, including for issues related to the South China Sea and broader uh, regional diplomacy. And second of all, we'll be coming back actually to the issue of Afghanistan and the peace deal. I know we did an episode on that quite recently, previewing the peace deal, but the deal has now happened and Prashant and I wanted to take stock of the implementation and sort of some of the doldrums that have come up in that process. So this will be a two-parter. So if you're interested in Afghanistan, you can go ahead and skip ahead, but we hope you'll uh, also stick around to listen to the segment on Malaysia. So Prashant, I haven't been following the Malaysian political tumult all that close closely, I'll be honest. Um, but I know that you do, since this is uh, really um, your your main area of focus. So I was wondering for many of our listeners who might not have even been keeping up with um, the very dramatic political changes that have happened, could you go over sort of the last, you know, two weeks or so in Malaysian politics, what's been going on? Yeah, I mean, as you correctly put it, I, I think political tumult is is probably the right phrase to use because essentially what what happened was, I mean, we did a, a podcast episode on this uh, shortly after uh, the last time, which is you know in May 2018, where there was kind of a historic election in Malaysia where we saw uh, for the first time really uh, the ouster of uh, UMNO, which is the party that has governed Malaysia since independence, effectively. Um, was actually voted out of power under the former prime minister, Najib Razak. And we saw uh, an incoming reformist government uh, that was ironically led by Malaysia's former longest serving prime minister, Mahathir Mohamad. They came to power. And essentially, this was a important story, not only for Malaysia, but also Southeast Asia, because there hasn't been a lot of good news in terms of democracy and reform in, in Southeast Asia. A lot of the uh, Single-party-led governments in the region, Laos, uh, Cambodia, Singapore, have remained, essentially, or, or even gotten stronger. And we've seen increasing authoritarianism in the case of Cambodia. Some of the democracies, uh, like uh, Indonesia and Thailand, have dealt with a number of different issues. Thailand had a coup in 2014. Indonesia has seen a lot of issues around pluralism and religious freedom. So Malaysia was kind of a rare example in Southeast Asia of a positive story for democracy and reform. But essentially what we've been seeing over the past few weeks is a huge uh, series of political realignments that have led to the ouster of that reformist government government coalition. So it was called the Pakatan Harapan uh, government, essentially, which is a multi-ethnic coalition of parties um, that, that had come to power back in May 2018. And that coalition was ousted, and you saw a coalition that emerged that comprised previously of UMNO, which was the former government that had been ousted, and PAS, which is an Islamist uh, party, along with other parties from uh, Sabah and Sarawak uh, in Malaysia. So, you know, I guess what the big, the sort of big significance of this is that it essentially has threatened to reverse a positive story for democracy that we had sort of heard about back in May 2018. And essentially the big debate that we had after that government was sworn in was, you know, is this kind of a reform story that would last across multiple governments 
or just one term or the real skeptics had said this is a government that's not going to survive even one term and we should be very careful about talking about reform and democracy and it looks like you know for the time being at least that 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 sort of more skeptical narrative has has prevailed here yeah um, and that has consequences not only for Malaysia domestically but also sort of foreign policy and, and geopolitics wise as you mentioned earlier as well yeah so I mean let's talk a little bit more in detail about uh, you know some of the individuals involved here because at the core of the coalition uh, government uh, you had two individuals Mahathir Mohammed and Anwar Ibrahim and the question for the while was you know how would Mahathir who had initially pledged to oversee the transition into the government and then eventually cede power to Anwar, how would that happen? And I guess now we know the answer, which is that it didn't happen and it probably won't happen. So where does that actually leave Anwar Ibrahim and his supporters in Malaysia today? Yeah, that has been a really important thread in this in this story. Um, you know, as you pointed out, the ex the expectation was always that there would be some sort of transition to power between Mahathir and Anwar that had been worked out earlier uh informally between them but how this essential political tumult and realignment kind of worked out was there was some political maneuvering uh that had led to this before uh where Mahathir and some other members of the coalition government were saying they wanted to actually hold off on the transition and they had been looking for ways to realign the coalition maybe you know reconfigure some of the alignments they had in order to maybe delay that uh, transition to power. And it was within that context that there there actually was an end to this Pakatan Harapan government, because essentially amid all this political maneuvering, you saw Mahathir essentially being ousted and the rise to the prime ministership of Muhyiddin Yassin, who had been part of the UMNO government under Najib Razak previously, but then he uh, essentially was kicked out of the government uh, for raising some concerns about corruption under the Najib government. And then he had been part of this Pakatan Harapan government, actually, he had a minister portfolio. Mm -hmm. But there were some differences between Mahathir, Muhyiddin, and others about whether they wanted to actually bring in people from UMNO and PAS, or they mm -hmm. wanted a different coalition dynamic. And then that's essentially how that Anwar Mahathir uh, sort of transition led to this. So essentially where we're left at is, um, you know, neither Mahathir nor Anwar are ironically very happy with what happened because Mahathir has been ousted and Anwar has not been given the prime ministership, which he essentially was seen as a sort of prime minister in waiting in Malaysia. And that really hasn't happened or he'll have to wait a at least a few years longer, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, so far we've mostly been talking about the domestic dynamics and this is very much, you know, seems like high level power politics, uh, sort of a Game of Thrones happening within the uh upper echelons of Malaysian politics. But, you know, you mentioned briefly that this will have um, consequences for Malaysia's role in the region. And Malaysia certainly is uh, one of the heavier weight countries in Southeast Asia. It's uh, an active claimant in the South China Sea, for example. It's been navigating a complex relationship with China. Uh, one of the consequences of the coalition government coming to power was a revisiting of several arrangements Malaysia had with China under the Belt and Road Initiative, for instance. So, uh, Prashant, when you look at this um, political tumult, I guess, that's been going on and the transition now to a new prime minister and a new government. What are some of the things that you think our listeners should be aware of when it comes to um, geopolitics in uh, Southeast Asia more broadly and Malaysia's role therein? Yeah, I think, you know, sort of in consonance with some of the previous episodes in this podcast where we've looked at, um, you know, new governments coming to power, uh, whether it's, you know, Pakistan or, or Sri Lanka, 
you know, Malaysia is is no different in, in this regard in that you have a new government uh, come to the fore. They have a number of domestic political challenges to address. Uh, there are questions about legitimacy now because you've you've had such a sudden shift in the political uh, climate in, in Malaysia. And, you know, everyone's dealing with this sort of, you know, coronavirus uh, issue, you know, economic headwinds and the like. But essentially, there, there are sort of a few ways to think about the geopolitical lens. One is, obviously, Malaysia is going to try to recalibrate a lot of its relationships with uh, regional countries, neighboring countries like, you know, Singapore, uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, and so on. You know, Mahadir, we discussed in, in a sort of a previous episode on the podcast, you know, he's had this sort of outsized role in Malaysian foreign policy. Um, but that's not always been to the benefit a lot of, of a lot of countries. I mean, there have been a lot of troubles in Malaysia's relationship with Singapore, Malaysia's relationship with the United States, even China initially, at least. So I think there will be a number of countries uh, that will be looking to see how this new government that's led by Muhyiddin Yassin, I mean, what does that actually mean? Can they sort of recalibrate those relationships? That's, I think, one piece that's important to watch. Uh, you mentioned the South China Sea. I think that's another one that's really important. You know, Malaysia submitted the sort of ex, uh, extended continental shelf claim uh, last year in December, and that sort of led to a whole host of uh, sort of responses from other countries in the region, including claimants in the South China Sea about, you know, what does this mean? Is Malaysia kind of changing its position, um, not just from China, but also from Vietnam and the Philippines um, within Southeast Asia as well. So I think a lot of these governments will be looking to see, you know, what are the effects of this for, for the Malaysian government? And of course, we, we have also talked about this before on the podcast. You know, Malaysia, the Malaysian government under the Pakatan Harapan government had released a number of uh, policy frameworks, one, you know, sort of foreign policy framework, and actually the first publicly issued defense white paper for Malaysia. A lot of those things were announced, and there were a lot of hopes for what this might mean for foreign policy and defense policy reform in Malaysia. But I think naturally, with this new government coming to power, in, this, in spite of what they've been saying about continuity, there'll be a lot of focus about whether these documents, you know, really actually mean anything with this rise of the new government. And where can we see the change rather than the continuity in, in Malaysian foreign policy? Right, right. Well, so this is something I think we should definitely uh, keep on top of. And uh, we can certainly come back to talk a bit more about Malaysia when we know more about the new government's uh, orientation on many of these issues. Of course, the issue, uh, you know, the main crisis that this government is dealing with, as if, um, as with almost every government around the world, is the spread of COVID-19, uh, the elephant mm -hmm. in the room that we haven't yet mentioned on the podcast. Um, you know, we will come back to talking about COVID-19 on future episodes for sure. Um, but certainly, I think that's um, going to be something that we'll want to come back to in the future, Prashant. But I think um, let's transition to talking about Afghanistan. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Great. So the last time we did an episode on Afghanistan, our timing was a little bit strange because we did it right before the deal was going to be signed. Although I, I have to say, I think a lot of the things that we talked about as being risks for the deal-making process between the United States and the Taliban have sort of panned out fairly well in the last um, almost three weeks uh, since the deal was signed on Leap Day, February 29th, between uh, Zalmay Khalilzad and uh, Mullah Baradar, the Taliban's political representative in uh, Doha, Qatar. Um, so there's been a lot that's happened uh, since then. So first of all, we've had competing inaugurations of presidents in Afghanistan. Uh, Ashraf Ghani, uh, the man who actually was um, tabulated to have won the highest number of votes by the Independent Election Commission in Afghanistan, um, 
had a normal inauguration ceremony with representatives from foreign governments, including from U.S. and coalition countries, while his rival and former chief executive Abdullah Abdullah had his own separate inauguration, which I think really underscores the sort of political malaise that underlies the Afghan government at a time when really it needs unity before this political process with the Taliban is going to begin. But Ghani has also had his hands full. Uh, He's reluctantly assented to the Taliban deal with the United States. And we should be clear that, you know, the Afghan government, the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was not a party to that agreement. That was a deal between the United States and the Taliban. If you read the full name of the actual agreement that they signed, it was very convoluted. The U.S. pointed out that it does not recognize the Taliban as a government in the name of the actual peace deal. But one of the issues that's come up is regarding the preconditions for talks to begin between uh, the Islamic Emirate and the Islamic Republic um, to lead to some kind of political transition. And the main sticking point here has been prisoner release. So the talks were supposed to begin between the Afghan government and the Taliban side on March 10th, according to the agreement. Um, You know, Ashraf Ghani did end up releasing prisoners, uh, Taliban fighters who had been imprisoned by the Afghan government, 1,500 of them. Uh, They were released on a staggered basis, but the total release number was supposed to be 5,000, right? So here we get into sort of the nitty-gritty of implementation. And the Taliban effectively didn't agree with Ghani's plan to stagger the release further because the Afghan government wanted longer time to ensure that the fighters being released wouldn't immediately go back into the battlefield. Um, There has been some concern also. The Taliban have mostly honored their agreement to not directly attack U.S. forces in, in the country but they haven't been as kind to the Afghan government and Afghan forces. Uh, So there have been attacks that have taken place since the peace agreement. So if the Afghan government is releasing prisoners right now, they need to be careful that they're not effectively giving their enemy, uh, who they're supposed to be entering into talks with, um, a battlefield advantage. So you see how this gets very dysfunctional. Um, So there's a lot of risks here. Um, And I think for the Taliban, you know, if, if, if you're pessimistic like I am, there seems to be this idea that if the Taliban sort of walked the line on implementing this deal, or at least holding off on direct attacks or egregious attacks on U.S. forces, the Trump administration will eventually see through its promise to withdraw troops, uh, pretending that everything is okay in Afghanistan, even if it's not. And after that happens, the Taliban can then rank up, uh, you know, ramp up their assaults on the Afghan government with the United States then unable to provide things like air support in the field because it'll just simply have fewer assets. So I'm personally not very optimistic about the the early signs on the implementation of this agreement. Uh, I think the, the political dysfunction in the Afghan government, the, the difficulties over implementing, the uh, you know, the fact that it's, it's taken significantly longer for the talks between the two sides to begin towards a political transition. None of this really bodes particularly well. Uh, but Prashant, how do you think the how do you think the US side is really thinking about the implementation of this deal so far? I know the US is distracted right now with COVID-19 like everyone else, but um, this the implementation of this deal with the Taliban really does seem to be a priority for the Trump administration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think as you correctly framed it, um, if if you're the Taliban, um, you know, that's kind of how you would be sort of thinking about this, that, you know, this is essentially an interim step where you get the U.S. to eventually withdraw its presence from Afghanistan, and that might strengthen your negotiating leverage. And from, from the perspective of the Taliban, they're dealing with a relatively speaking favorable set of circumstances where the appetite for withdrawal 
um, by the United States and the Trump administration in particular, because if you look at polling, uh, U.S. public opinion is actually mixed depending on you know how you ask the question. Then you also have the fact that the Afghan government is divided. Um, and you have the fact that you have a government right now that's not only divided, but it's also confronting an array of challenges, including COVID-19, as, as you as you mentioned, that, that could get worse before it gets better. So that that's uh, an element of the calculation from the perspective of the Taliban, I think. And I think from the perspective of the United States, I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that the impression that we got from the Trump administration in the lead up to the agreement was the fact that the fact that the Afghan uh, government wasn't explicitly included, uh, the fact that you had U.S. officials trying to reach agreement in spite of those divisions, and then also asking the Afghan government to sort of get some kind of unity, uh, and the fact that you had a, a sort of you know, calibrated withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, you know, reflected the fact that the Trump administration did want some withdrawal to take place irrespective of those realities. I think there's two complications to that. One is that We've seen those realities as we expected, and we talked about in the previous podcast, get a lot more complicated uh, than the initial deal, um, you know, the, the sense was from the initial deal. And then the second part of that is that you have a reality in which um, you have a holding pattern uh, to a certain extent with respect to whether you have the U.S. election uh, coming up later this year and whether you have a Trump administration that's willing to actually carry on with this withdrawal plan, or you have a new democratic administration that's gonna come into office with whether uh, a decision about whether to carry on with this deal or whether to actually uh, sort of reconfigure how the United States is thinking about Afghanistan policy. So there really is a whole set of variables uh, in this mix uh, that extends beyond the initial deal or accord that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it seems very difficult for me to imagine, uh, given the current national emergency in the United States over COVID-19 and mm -hmm. the rapidly shifting public um, public opinion and even uh, legislative dynamics onto internal issues, it seems very difficult for me to imagine the United States reversing course in Afghanistan, even under a democratic administration. It's, it's you know, I mean, there is a limit to the Vietnam analogies that people like to draw, um, but mm -hmm. certainly, um, you know, to some extent, um, the process with the Taliban and the the inability of the United States to really ensure that the Afghan government manages to sort out its internal affairs before approaching the Taliban for talks, there is this, you know, this cause for concern that we're going to see sort of a fall of Saigon moment after the United States does complete its withdrawal. Um, certainly, I think it's too early to to make any determination, um, especially, you know, once once talks do begin between the two sides, if they collapse immediately and the um, and the Taliban head into their traditional seasonal summer offensive, that might make the United States decision a little bit easier in the sense that the deal would just fall apart and the troop numbers would remain at around 8,600 after the immediate withdrawal. And we'd basically be back to where we started when the Trump administration came into office. But um, there is the other possibility that the Taliban do manage to wait this out. The United States does complete withdrawal. Um, even if things don't go perfectly, um, there might be very little appetite politically for even you know, a crisis-laden Trump administration or a new Democratic administration to change course in Afghanistan. So uh, we'll have to see. But certainly, I think this is something to uh, keep an eye on um, as, as the year goes on. And of course, uh, geopolitically, much of this presents an opportunity for countries on Afghanistan's flank, including Pakistan and Iran, but also great powers in the region, including uh, Russia and China, who do have stakes in the future of Afghanistan and have been uh, making their own attempts to hedge whatever future lies ahead for that country, be that under the Taliban or under the Afghan government. So 
certainly something worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it is kind of important to to pay attention to the specific developments here because you know the the initial US withdrawal was was you know sort of so-called conditions based, but if if you're sort of an expert or an analyst trying to look at, you know, what are the specific conditions that would lead to the calibration of that withdrawal, it's really difficult. I mean, a lot of the information that you know would be required for us to judge that hasn't been disclosed, right? So there's a sort of classified implementation agreement documents that State Department and, and the Pentagon have come up with, but we don't exactly know what has been agreed with uh, between you know the United States and, and, and Taliban and other authorities. And then you also have this issue of um, the Afghan government having its own internal deliberations and issues. So there really are multiple layers here that, that make this a very difficult uh, issue by which we can get a sense of clarity on. Yeah, well... I think we'll leave it there for this week. Uh, certainly something we'll come back to. Uh, so for listeners, like I said, we did this episode primarily based on listener demand. As always, if you're interested in hearing Prashant and I address any uh, issue that we haven't yet on the podcast, please just read out to, uh, reach out to us on either uh, Twitter or via email. We're very happy to take those into consideration for future episodes. Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. So um, for listeners, as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. You can do that on either Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. It helps people find the show, which we really do appreciate. And finally, just a note from our sponsor before we close, this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of the Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, the Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back next week with more.